to the Learn By Doing podcast. This is your host, Sue Brooks, and I have someone very special with me today. I can tell you it is going to be one of my favorite guests. I am going to be biased because it is my husband, Brian Brooks. Hey, Brian, what's up? Hey, what's going on? I'm laughing because Brian's adjusting the mic. He knows how these things are supposed to work, and he's (laughs) he's looking at the mic right now. I either know what I'm doing or it's just a nervous tick. (laughs) Brian, do you want to talk technology then or leadership? I'll talk anything you want. Okay, so this is so fun that I get to interview my husband, Brian Brooks. Brian, you are currently the dean of the Oak School of Leadership. When I met you, you were the pastor of Freedom Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. What didn't go by that name then, but that is what the name is right Mm -hmm. now. I said I'd never marry a pastor, uh, but then I met you. And you yep. were young. How old were you when you first started stepping? So what you were doing is you were stepping in to preach. Yeah. At first. And then they wanted you to come on. Tell us how old you were. Let's see. That would have been that would have been the spring of 2002. So I would have been t- almost 23. Not quite 23. Yeah. I would have been 22. You were only 22. And mm. they had asked you to come. The district superintendent of the Potomac District of yeah. the Assemblies of God asked you to come in because... What were you doing prior to that? I know, but tell our listeners. Yeah. Well, I was serving in the chaplain of the U.S. Senate's office on the third floor of the U.S. Capitol, S332, which is the exact address. And if you're facing the Capitol and the monument is behind you, there's a circular, big circular window on the third floor of the Capitol, and that was our office. So I served there every day. It started out as a position that I I got just by applying for, but it was an unpaid position. And then after September 11th, 2001, it turned into a paid position. Yeah, because you were there on September 11th. Yes. I know we listen to podcasts at different times. Someone might be listening to this in the summer, but as of today, we have just recently recognized the 18th year anniversary, right, of yeah, September 11th. Yeah, and I 11th. Can't believe it's been that long. It's been that long, yeah. Well, and then I think, too, the Capitol building was a target, yeah? Yeah, I think most people say that. In fact... I've read some books. Uh, Ashcroft's book said that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rumsfeld book books book said the same thing. So it's ge- generally believed that that was going yeah, to be a target. Yeah, I think some some people thought that the plane that went into the Pentagon was headed for the White House, and then the plane that went down in Pennsylvania was headed for the Capitol. Yeah, and the Capitol would have been a really easy target. But mm-hmm. when they were forcefully evacuating us from the building, they were telling us that there was a plane headed to the Capitol. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they really knew that at the time. It could have just been a tactic to get everybody out quick. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what they were saying to everybody in a few more colorful words. I bet. Yeah. And and maybe some weapons involved too, too right. uh, to help right. prod you along. The um, Secret Service, they're all over the place. So they situations like that, they kind of took over from Capitol, Capitol Police. Oh, I didn't realize that. And um, they were very much more tactical, dressed in tactical gear, mm-hmm. cargo pants, M4 machine gun type stuff. Wasn't your typical police officer evacuation. So it was very, you know, it's a little more, a little more tense, a little more stressful. And I think a lot of that had to do with not, none of them really knew what was happening. They were just trying to get people out and trying to get them to safety. So yeah, it was scary. And you didn't have information coming across as easily as you do nowadays. So no, I'm sure. No, there were cell phones back then, but they were, you know, the service went down. Mm-hmm. It was I remember difficult. that. Yeah. You know, it was flip phones back in those days. Right. 
Well, um, we were even talking, even when you watch the news back then, if you watch news now, there are the news tickers all over the place. There's all these graphics on the screen. You're getting what the reporters are telling you, but you're also reading several pieces of information at one time. Pre 9-11, that is not how it happened. You didn't, the only right. time you ever saw a ticker come across the screen is if there, if, if there was an emergency or right. like a storm or something coming through and usually your screen would, I think even black out. I don't know, but yeah, yeah they it's just so different. It, they wouldn't do it all the time. They would do it occasionally with things, but it wasn't like after 9-11, it was like constant rolling that mm -hmm. ticker at the bottom, you know, and Fox News alerts and whatever other the sta stations do for alerting everybody. But it turned into like an alert every, <laughs> every 30 minutes with the news. Right. And so it still seems like it's like that. I don't, yeah, it hasn't really gone away. I haven't watched really much news away. lately, but, but it, they kind of seem to be doing that. And I don't know if that, I'm sure there's some sort of thinking that it increased viewership to have those alerts. Yeah. Always keep people tense about what's going on. Yeah, that's the truth. Well, you know, I didn't know you during 9-11. I didn't know, I actually didn't yeah. meet you till after. So, so then you were brought on full time for the Senate chaplain then was Dr. Ogilvie. So you were, right. you were brought on full time. And then in the meantime, the district superintendent of the Potomac District and the Assemblies of God had asked you to come fill in preaching, right? Mm -hmm. For a church yeah. in Fredericksburg, the pastor had, there was a situation, the pastor wasn't there anymore. Yeah, I think about that a lot. I hadn't thought about it early on in, in meeting you and in our marriage, but it's been later that I thought, you know, if the Capitol building had been a target and it had gone differently, there wouldn't be a Brian and a Sue and, and Ellie and Evan, Ava, Aaron, Ian, you know, we wouldn't have our all our kids. And then you think, to the sacrifice that that people made if, if the plane mm -hmm. that was in pennsylvania was supposed to yeah. land i mean think of the sacrifice yeah, that other people make about that yeah I, I it's of, humbling i thought about that when i read it in the books i thought about that when i saw that movie united 93 i thought i wonder if i was one of the lives that those people saved you know who knows what would have happened but there's a very real chance of that so definitely yeah. have thought about that mm -hmm. often it's, it's like chilling and humbling. Uh, mm -hmm. all, it's all these different things. Yeah. And I'm sure your parents and your family that were, were in Texas now living, but back then obviously D.C. and in the Virginia area in Maryland, your parents, I don't know if they had thought, wow, my, my son went into ministry on Capitol Hill and now look. <laughs> and I'm sure that wasn't in your view either. What was the response from um. them? I think on the day it happened, there was so much chaos and confusion, like no one really knew what was happening. And I think if my, if my understanding is correct, my, my mom didn't know what was going on. Uh, she just heard the planes hit the, hit the towers. And then one of the, some student at some point came to her and said a plane has hit the U.S. Capitol. And she Oh, she thought that. that a plane hit Yeah, the nobody really knew. I yeah. mean, you just, you were kind of waiting on information from the news mm -hmm. and the Pentagon was hit, which I could see from our office window. We actually watched black smoke going up into, it was really weird that day was crystal blue skies, yeah. no, no clouds. Everything was so blue and like golden and it was early in the morning. So the light was kind of soft. It was very, it was like beautiful Washington DC morning other than the heat. It was still a little bit hot, but you could see this like trail of thick black smoke going up across the mall mm -hmm. between the Capitol and the monument as we were evacuated out onto the mall. It was pretty crazy, but yeah. this information was all over the place. So she, you know, why wouldn't she believe what was said there? So mm -hmm. anyway, there was, you know, they were rushing us all out of there. I know, I know it's not, I mean, they were say, you know, they were trying to save everybody's lives, but you know, senators were in there. Um, the vice president wasn't in there on that day, but they're trying to, you know, there are a lot of leaders in there. That would have been a 
prime target, I'm sure, for and to take those people out. But yeah. anyway. So, you know, Brian, this is funny because we've been married for almost 16 years now, and I don't know that I've even asked you this question, which is actually why I thought it'd be fun to interview because I felt like certain questions would come out that I haven't really thought to answer to ask you yeah. in the first place. So obviously people don't just jump into being a leader, right? So you're not in your early 20s and, oh, it was my first leadership position ever. Surely there's probably things that happened in college where you had leadership and then youth group. But this was a big step in leadership and you were only a few months into it, that's a pretty traumatic event. And do you feel that it affected you anyway? Or did it take a few years for you to process, oh, that kind of affected my mindset and leadership a little bit? Because it's almost like here's a traumatic event and now what do we do with it? But how, how did you see it? Well, I was 22. So, you know, I think, I'm, you know, I'm just gonna be honest with the, what, what age I was. Mm-hmm. You know, you're still, your younger 20s, you still very much feel invincible in life. Like, you know, even if something would have hit the capital, oh, surely I would get out, you know, I'm not going to lose my life. You know, it's that kind of feeling, I think, when you're younger like that, you don't. Years later, I'm kind of like, man, I might have been really close to something happening there. But in the moment when I'm so young, I don't know that I was thinking uh, with obviously with the same kind of way that I would think now being 40. But I don't I don't I just remember so much panic in that moment by so many people like everybody was there was just sheer panic mm-hmm. and people were afraid you couldn't contact anyone cell phones were down people were saying things all over the place rumors bombs had gone off in the subway a car bomb just went off we heard this loud bang when we were out on the mo- national mall but no one knew what that was i still don't know what that was to this oh, day it was massive I, w- I do want to clarify sorry to interrupt i do want to clarify for our listeners because if a lot of people if they're not from that area in dc they think of an actual mall like a shopping yeah, mall okay. and the mall is really a right. nice large piece of lawn maybe you can describe right. it too the mall is just the piece of of property between the capital and the monument and then the reflecting pool is the piece of well the reflecting pool also is in front of the capitol but is between the monument and the lincoln so it's a piece of property mm-hmm. yeah right so it's it's a wide open space really and so right. when you say you were right. out on and the it's lo- lined on by mall, trees and it's massive it right I mean, it's, it's pretty it's just it's beautiful it's absolutely massive yeah. yeah yeah but you know what's interesting is you you probably didn't process it like a 40 year old with a, a wife and kids would process it that's maybe good i don't know but well what, yeah, I was just going to say that it eventually hit me because I remember, especially the next day, you know, just kind of shaking, thinking mm-hmm. about, because then it was starting to come out that this other plane had gone down and people and people are already starting to say that w- that was headed for the Capitol. And, and then you also have this thing where you don't, you don't, looking back, you, you see that the plan was orchestrated and that there was, there were, f- you know, four planes, I think. But in the moment, you don't know, you think. What if there are 15 or 20? What if it's going to happen oh, again yeah. tomorrow? Yeah. I got on a plane that Friday to come here to Dallas and leaving National Airport. And we were going down the runway and everybody on the plane is already sort of tense and freaking out. And we're going down the runway and you start to feel our plane lift off the off the runway. And then the, the captain puts on the brakes and he's, he stops the plane and everyone's just going crazy three days later. Wow. And he's turning the plane around to go back to oh the gosh. airport because of what he said was suspicious activity and like everyone's just like what i don't know oh so, uh, brian i remember you telling that i remember you speaking about that in a sermon that was probably i the, forgot about that that was probably the moment where i was 
maybe the most afraid in that moment was just you just don't know what's really happening mm -hmm. and yeah anyway wow but. i bet your parents and your brother were glad to see you back home hopefully <laughs> i mean i'm gonna say they were <laughs> i think they probably were i'm sure so here you are your early 20s but this actually turned out to be i mean you are there as the personal assistant to the chaplain on capitol hill this was really prime time for you as a christian to step in and to lead and to help minister to the house and the senate yeah yeah can well, you talk about that yeah, I'll explain a little bit about what the role was uh, that I had at the time. So the U.S. Senate, United States Senate, they've had a chaplain that is is voted on by the senators. It's an official Senate leadership position, and it's in, been in existence ever since the birth of our country, 1778, I believe. 1776, obviously, the birth of our country, but uh, 1778 say, wow. was, oh, I think, the first when they voted in to have a chaplain. a chaplain. They wanted somebody, because you have, think about it, you have all these senators that come from across the nation, and uh, back then they didn't have as many, obviously, but they're coming from all these different places. They're coming to lead, and they're often leaving their homes behind, their churches, and back then most of them would have been, if not all of them, would have been church-going congressional leaders, and so... They're leaving and they're coming to D.C. and they're kind of there temporarily. They bring their families. And this was set up to be an office that could pastor or take care of these people. Like, let's say, a funeral or a wedding or, or counseling or just anything you can think of ministry-wise. And so this is, this is, you know, over 200 years old. And we had a staff of four and uh, 6,000 people work in the U.S. Senate. And wow. And most people don't know this, but we had over 120 small groups across the campus in all of the Senate office buildings and in the U.S. Capitol. We had uh, senators would come to Bible study. We had a Bible study, a small group essentially for senators' wives, uh, specifically for chiefs of staff. We had all these different types of groups across the campus, and we were there. Just imagine a, imagine a church staff uh, of four for six, a church of wow. 6,000. Wow. That's kind of how it was. Let's and nobody complain. Nobody <laughs> complain about your job so, <laughs> and your capacity. Um, now, obviously, they weren't always. It's not quite the same because they weren't always there. But, you know, our role was essentially kind of the same um, to pastor. So my my role really was to, to help Dr. Ogilvie and everything he needed. So oftentimes I would, you know, uh, walk him to different events. Like he, every morning before the Senate would go into session, we would lead a prayer. And uh, the senators would be in there when they started after the after the pledge, and he would get up and lead the prayer, and I would basically be with him with whatever he needs. So constantly interacting with the senators, um, Vice President Cheney at the time. Uh, of course, when 9-11 happened, a lot of the ability to interact uh, changed. And in some ways, our office was definitely more, it was more um, strategic because we, in terms of all of the staff, because very many, a lot of people were scared. They were they were afraid, afraid to come to work, things like that. And then when the anthrax attack, I don't even know if anybody remembers all oh, that. Oh yeah, no, the, I when do. When the anthrax stuff happened in the Senate, that was a big deal because the girl who opened it, she was a regular at our small group when she opened the envelope. Mm -hmm. um, Can could you explain to the? Because we have a lot of younger listeners who were some of them not right. even born yet. They don't. I know. Uh, so. So basically, anthrax, it's this poison, and then it was sent somebody, I don't even know if they ever caught the person, but was sending anthrax. It, it was like a chemical powder. Yeah, it was chemical mm -hmm. powder. It and gets it in the air. You. You can get it into your, kill you. Get into yeah. your lungs, and you can, you can die. So a girl 
opened it in Senator Daschle's office, and then there were other ones in the mailroom and things. And these people were actually, we know, we knew who these people were, and they were afraid. And then you had, if it gets in the ventilation system, then everybody, everybody can get it because it can be running through the vents. It was horrible, mm-hmm. and it's not talked about much today. I think maybe in it's kind of in the shadow of 9/11 a little bit. Because obviously nothing can compare to 9/11, but but, but it, it was, was part a of very the panic. I mean, serious was, yeah, moment yeah. on Capitol like Hill. Like insult to injury, really. I mean, this already yeah. happened, and now you're going to throw in anthrax. We don't know if it's on our university campuses and our government buildings, right? Because uh, I remember even threats on my campus in, yeah. in Newport News, Virginia, and someone uh, there a rock had been thrown through a window, and um, something had been left, and yeah. with the appearance of an anthrax. So you've got these copycat but fake um, right. replications of the real thing. It was it was a scary scary time. But it, it was scary time. But it also it also presented a lot of opportunities for our office to minister in ways that we we had never been able to before in you know you when everybody in the u.s senate has to get tested by getting a swab up their their nose for uh, anthrax to see if they've been exposed and there's a line down the hallways of all of the senate office buildings of thousand thousands of people waiting to get tested and they're all freaking out wondering if they've got it and i remember being with dr ogilvy as he went one by one just encouraging people in that line. Wow. Um, now we had a lot of people coming to our small groups, but not nearly, not nearly more than half. I mean, we, we probably had at our most, maybe 15% of Capitol Hill that would actually come to our small groups and the things that we offered on a regular day. Yeah. On mm-hmm. a regular, regular week or whatever. But this, this was everybody. I mean, everybody want you know, Wow. was so blessed and I, and I just remember hours upon hours just going through this line talking to people who were afraid um doing that and uh yeah anyway um yeah it's just a it's just a real testimony and I would say just a real life example an interesting and extreme too example of how as people who are followers of Jesus as we come into traumatic things that happen and devastation you were you were strategically placed in a role where you could minister to people, even if we don't hold that title, that is our call. We are to be the ones who who then can step up and be the hope that other people don't have. That's something I. It took me years to to get there. You know that I I really dealt with a spirit of fear for a really long time. I just couldn't handle the thought of um, disasters happening, mm-hmm. what, what terrorism happening, anything like that, just horrific things. And I finally finally one day I, it was probably slowly. And then finally, when it really clicked with me, no, you're the one who carries the message of Jesus Christ. You're yeah. not the one who lives in hopelessness. You're yeah. the one who has the promise of a future and a hope. And so your job is not to cower back in fear and and not give anyone the hope that you have, which is, by the way, Sue, dwindling. You know, this is the self-talk. Like, it's dwindling because you won't share it. That is such a testament to what we're called to be. And yeah. you were just given this intense opportunity well, to you watch what. that come through. I'll tell you what, like there's, before I actually landed that job, um, there was a moment that summer, early on with that summer where I didn't know, I had just graduated from college and um, I had turned down some youth pastor opportunities because I just felt like I don't really want to do, everybody's doing that. I don't really want to do that. I wanted to do something different. I'm just learning this. I'm just learning this. I've told you this before. I'm just recalling this. That's what I'm, (laughs) you guys, you heard me wrong. I'm just not recalling this. Um, I didn't know the specifics. So that summer, <laughs> uh, I had a 
I had a SAGU professor, Jeff Magruder, say, hey, have you ever looked into the Senate chaplain's office? And I was like, no, what is, I don't even know what that is. And, and I looked into it, and he's the one that said, hey, why don't you just send a letter, see if you can get an interview. And I just believe, I wrote this letter, I sent it up there, and I just believed that this was what God wanted me to do. And so I packed all my stuff in the car. My dad jumped in with me. <laughs> I think I may have acted like I was, I had the job already, but it, when I didn't tell him until I got there that all it is is an interview. <laughs> and so, <laughs> but I knew that I was like, you know what? I feel like I'm supposed to be here. I've already got a place to live. My aunt and uncle had opened up their home for me to stay there just outside of DC. I've got a, you know, I'm just supposed to be here. And if this is not it, then so be it. And I remember you know, I didn't realize at the time, but there were 200 people or so that had applied for these this this one wow. opening. I got myself a good man. The <laughs> Princeton, Harvard graduates, Come on. all of these, and I was like, "Oh man, I'm not going to get this." What? But something inside of me said, "Look, when you go in there and you meet with with Dr. Ogilvy, just just be yourself." And so we got to talking in the in, in the interview, and he, somehow we got talking about golf and I was helping him with his swing in the interview and I think that built the relationship that broke down the walls and then we also talked about the Holy Spirit because that was another thing that I was like you know what I don't think there were hardly I don't think there were any Assemblies of God students that had tried to get this it was all sort of your you know Baptist kind of Presbyterian just um, ones that are not typically yeah, known for just not the, you know believing in the Spe- yeah, baptism with I don't evidence say they of speaking but, in tongues. But yeah, yeah for not the most, they're, they're yeah. known for that. So, but I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna, sh- I'm not gonna shy away from. I'm gonna, you know, look. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, anyway, we had a good conversation about that. And I think actually, at the end of the day, when I got the call back and he said, "Hey, he wants you to, he wants you to come on board the team and take this position," I really think it was those two things that where God had just allowed me to have conversations about things that made me different than everybody else on the list. Um, it wasn't just a job for me. It was a ministry. So, and that's why I wanted to be there. And so I think that's, and so that, that moment and then having that and then being on there in 9-11 and after 9-11 and the months following just going, man, God, you did have a purpose. You did have me here for a reason. Um, maybe, obviously I'm sure other people could have done this, but I felt like I brought something different to the team that no one else a, a perspective that no one else maybe had that uh, that tried to get this position, and it was just for that for that wow. moment, you know. So anyway, yeah, and it was just doing what you knew to do. It was just being Brian yeah. Brooks. You were just Brian Brooks, being Brian Brooks, and he it worked. Yeah. He liked you. He wanted you, and he I'm sure that was prayerful on his part too. Yeah, and said, so Lord, now didn't he have? Wasn't he complaining about pain or an injury in the golf swing? And is that what you yeah helped him something correct? in his knee? And so I was helping him with his you know with his stance. We don't need to get in all into that. Right now. I don't know, but I think it's but interesting, it was, it was like, interesting yeah. that your conversation even went as open and as casual for you to even know that he had an issue with his golf swing. Sometimes right. when we think about interviews, especially in the government, you know, in these high and lofty places, I wouldn't think that we would be having these conversations. You think how how well put together can I be? How articulate can I sound? Yeah. Um, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I have to say the right thing. And you end up talking about a golf swing. I mean, I just right. think that's cool. So that's kind of why I wanted to get into those details. I mean, it was knee pain and now you got the job. Yeah. You I know, mean, like- and we had a conversation <laughs> in a professional manner. Like it was a, you sure. know, it wasn't like, yeah. you know, me not respecting him. I was respecting him, but I was trying to help him. I was trying to provide advice for him. 
and that's something that he cared about and he really enjoyed and it was you know he would play in Scotland and Ireland and all these places and he but he was having issues with his knee and so I said I gave him a couple things I don't even know if it's correct anymore <laughs> but <laughs> but it works for you then yeah but it but it, it he said he would often say it really really helped me and honestly wow. sometimes I'm like god maybe you told me what to say because I don't even remember I remember somewhat of what I told him to do but it wasn't like I wasn't a golf genius. I didn't know, you know, I just, so here's something that helped me. Anyway, he said it really helped, so. That's good. Yeah. That's really good. So what was it like then to leave Capitol Hill? I mean, you got great opportunity there. You have this church revitalization that is, that they're asking you to help with in Fredericksburg. It was, it was left in a really unhealthy situation. I mean, not that the congregation was, but what had happened was unhealthy. There was stuff that even you didn't know until a little while later, things that were kept from you about the church. Yeah. So what was that like for you? The process of saying, God, you, I thought you took me to Capitol Hill, but now why are you asking me to pastor this church? Yeah, that was that was very difficult season in my life because I really, I was kind of torn. I, I knew on the inside that God had called me to be a pastor. But here I was in this environment where there were leaders, there were very influential people in in society. And a lot of my friends, you know, they were going to law school, they were doing all of this, you know, they were doing business school or whatever. And then I, I kind of thought at the very end in the spring of 2002, I thought maybe that's what I need to do. I mean, I've got this position. I know that Dr. Ogilvy, you know, he's going to write me a letter, and, you know, to whatever. If I get, go to law school or whatever, and maybe just go down that career path, but something on the inside of me was like, you know, I've called you to be a pastor. I haven't called you to do all these other things. I've called you specifically to my church to help my church. And can I, can I interrupt when you say he could write you a letter, you're saying he could have, his recommendation would have gotten you into anywhere. I don't know if really. it would have, I mean, or it I, don't, I don't want to say that, but oh, absolutely. Cause it would have helped I so mean, much. It, if, the thing there, there was kind of this rule on Capitol Hill that, you know, if you could get a letter of recommendation from anybody in Senate leadership or a Senator, it was extremely helpful like way more helpful than anything else it's kind of a big deal to yeah. get you into because i mean because obviously you didn't get the those roles on accident like mm-hmm. you've had to, yeah you know you've had to yeah, demonstrate and... leadership and so anyway yeah god just kept tugging at me to be a pastor and and the super and i had gone to the the superintendent to meet with him to see if you know what kind of opportunities i could fill in on the weekends on sundays and there was this church in fredericksburg virginia just south that the superintendent said, hey, they, they don't have a pastor right now. They just need somebody to speak. And so I would go down there and on the weekends and I would speak. Yeah. In the meantime, I was uh, in college and my family moved from Virginia Beach up to Fredericksburg and started going to that church. My brother and sister-in-law lived up there and then another one did too. And, and I know that they had been going to the church prior to the pastor leaving, I think. And so then that's, then my parents started going. Yeah. And that's how I met you. Yeah. I remember you. I remember you you speaking. Yeah. Yeah. I, my words were, I met you. His words were, I saw you. (laughs) I I love that. That's funny. You still tell me you remember what I was wearing. Yep. Okay. So now you take on this position as a pastor. Talk about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, really, I didn't know what, what I was doing. (laughs) I mean, that's the gist of it. My internship experience wasn't uh, wasn't a great experience. It's not like you know Oak School leadership internship experiences. Uh, there really wasn't much there at all. Yeah. 
So I never had a chance to do a wedding. I had never done a funeral. I had never, I had never even sat in a board meeting. Oh, I remember your first baby dedication. <laughs> I, was it the first time you even held a baby? Because it looked like it. it uh, you have, you have young enough have cousins. Been. Okay, I was gonna say you have young enough cousins that you may have held some cousins. But Brian, yeah, that was know. funny, y'all. You should have seen. It was the cutest thing. <laughs> The way he held, the way he handled this baby. Oh my yeah. gosh. Well, when, I mean, I mean, I really, really didn't know what I was doing. So, so I knew about speaking, like I knew about preaching. I knew how to do that. I could do that reasonably well, I thought. I yeah, mean, I felt you pretty did. confident in doing that. But other than that, I hadn't, I was not, I didn't understand anything. Uh, I thought I knew more than I actually did. And so I didn't have a great learning experience when I was in college. And then I sort of jumped into this opportunity of ministry, which, first of all, there wasn't, there weren't very many people there. It was an opportunity for me, and so I didn't care. I, I, I wanted an opportunity, and I loved this sort of this proposal of from the superintendent. Of he said, you know, this church, somebody gave it a little bit of money. It's got some money. We've got about two years to try to make it work, and we can, you can do whatever you want. You can start it over. You can try. And I didn't know it at the time, but this church was six years old. They had gone through three different pastors, yeah. uh, two of which had affairs. Then you had the last one that just had just took off one Monday, just got tired of it. And at one point, they had gotten up to 120, but then they, were, I mean, they were down to like just not very many people at all. I think I think 27 people voted on me, which they didn't even need to vote. <laughs> it wasn't. It's not a sovereign church, so. 27 people voted, and I think um, I was told that 19 of them weren't even technically allowed to vote anyway. Oh, just so, to show how small the numbers were. Yeah, so yeah. really eight votes, you know, it was just, but I didn't care. I was 22. I just saw, you know, I was coming up on 23, I just saw opportunity. I saw a great chance to try to build something, and I've always been that way. I want to pioneer something new. I want to try to build something from scratch. It's just innate in me. I like to do stuff like that. And so uh, this was a chance to do it. I knew that I did not want to go on staff somewhere and sort of be locked into another type of vision. I wanted to try to create something that was different. And so that's probably what jumped out at me the most with that. So, yeah, I jumped in there. I didn't I really did not know know how to lead at all. You you definitely learned just by doing. I learned by doing. <laughs> but but by doing. um but you're also in charge. You didn't yeah, really have someone to help. I mean, I had to, to learn it quickly. I mean, so I had, I just used the experience, somewhat of the experience that I had. A lot of the, honestly, a lot of the experience that I had gotten on Capitol Hill, I tried to put that into motion, you know, but it was really challenging. I mean, our, we really took off and we grew in those first four years. We had a great location, a great building, and we, a lot of military around there. We'd had a lot of turnover, but we were really starting to grow. We had more, more momentum than the church has ever seen. And we were routinely having numbers of 120. I know that probably sounds small here. In, in Oaks, hey, but uh, in Virginia, that actually is pretty, actually, that's really big. Actually they just don't have large churches. So yeah, yeah. no, it was right. a good sized right. church. Yeah. And so we, it started taking off, but then we were sort of, we were forced to move out of that location. And that started a journey of, eight different locations over the next four years yeah that was not fun was extremely challenging so yeah yeah i remember yeah but we had really great people i mean honestly looking back i I wish we had great people i want i wish i could have uh, been able to lead them better better servant leader 
You know, um, one of the things that happened during that time too, you mentioned there was a lot of um, people coming and going and then we had all these moves. That was insane. In fact, when we moved to Texas, I found myself any time that we were driving down the street and I saw a for sale sign on a property, I still was looking at it. It took a few months for me to not look at property for sale signs because I was so accustomed to doing that when we were in Virginia. Yeah, I'm still looking at stuff like that. Well, I, <laughs> I think still that's... I stuff and I'm it, like, oh, that'd be a good spot. Right that's there. because <laughs> you're an entrepreneur. For me, it was like fear-driven, like, oh, we need yeah. to find a place. Yeah, and so I was glad when that finally left me. But another thing that we... I want not just we, but the people that it directly impacted right there in their own home because it was their own family, was that we had several deaths in our church. Yeah. I mean, and they were... Keep, oh, keep people in, yeah. They were so heartbreaking. And so, I mean, they were one after the other. And and two of them were very young. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that was, yeah. that. I think probably the most heartbreaking was, was, was our friend who... Um, has three children is yeah. married and and when she got really sick well she was leading everything you know she, the family she was just awesome i still love that family to pieces and that's one yeah. of those things when you go when you when you go through that with someone and you watch them you can be in another state for what we're we've been here nine years it's it's you still feel close to them and love them with everything as much as as much as i learned on capitol hill and some of those moments the you know that great leadership opportunity that just seemed so awesome i'll tell you i learned a hundred times more when you know you're let's see i would have been 20 27 when she passed away i think and having to walk into that house you know after three years of praying with that family and and people prophesying that she was going to be healed of cancer and and constantly speaking life and life and then the day she passed away having to be in that living room telling those incredible kids with their dad that that's like another level and it's that the moments like that and we had several moments like that i think that were really really challenging but you know to to try to i guess convey what i learned in that moment just that presence presence means so much not words presence mm-hmm. just being there being someone because i mean anybody you can't explain it you know you can't explain why God would choose to take her. I mean, she was an incredible woman, a servant of God. Like you would have thought, man, she would have had 40 or 50 more years of amazing ministry on this earth. God, why? Right. Nobody could explain it. I couldn't definitely not explain it. But just being there, I think, meant everything to that family. And it was very difficult. But I think one of the things that I learned um, after that, I don't know how well I grasp it in the moment. I know that we had just had a baby when that all happened. And so there was, there was a lot of emotions and things that even I was processing as a, a mom of another baby, thinking about what would happen to my children if that had happened to me. But so I don't know quite what my, my thought process was in dealing, but one of the things I, I did learn eventually from that process is the scripture that says we're, we're to rejoice with those who rejoice mm-hmm. and weep with those who weep. And a lot of times when um, someone dies and they are a believer, you want to say, oh, they're, they're with Jesus now. We can be happy. We can, re- we can rejoice. Well, no, because your ch- the children are mourning and that husband is a widow now right. and they're without their best friend, their mother, you know, 
And so it is so important to know as leaders that when it's okay, we, we are not always going to have the answer. Sometimes the best thing to do is weep with those who weep. Otherwise it, it's like pouring salt on a wound. Yeah. It stings when, when you're, when you're sad and you're in the middle of it and someone's happy or when you're happy and someone's bringing you down. Yeah, or, this, you know, or it's something that you can't explain and someone tries to solve it with words. And that's often like a lot of times I'm like, you, you could, one of the biggest ways I think you can tell a mature leader from an immature one is the mature one just knows to trust the whole, that the Holy Spirit is working yeah. and to just be there and be present and comfort and love. And then the immature leader is constantly trying to solve things with words and pithy sayings and quotes and one-liners. It's a huge, huge difference. And I think I realized in that moment in that living room, it was extremely difficult. I couldn't explain how difficult it was watching those kids tear up because she was gone and just the spirit of God saying, there is nothing to say. Just tell them I love them and be there. I mean, what else, you know, so, but yeah. Yeah. Those were interesting, tough times. You know, for one, um, you know, I don't, I don't even remember which location this was in terms of the chronological order anymore, but maybe it was location seven or eight. The whole karate studio experiment. Oh my word! Yeah, was <laughs> was a learning experience. You know, we had been looking for, I mean, been looking forever for a place to have church. We finally found this karate studio that was six thousand square feet, wide open space. We thought, oh, surely we can worship in here. There are bathrooms in here. It needs a little bit of work. So we go in and we sign the lease. We put, I can't remember if it was like fifteen thousand dollars down or something. We had to pay. A full year in front or something not a full year it was, no that had to be like yeah because it was it was five thousand dollars yeah that was a three month deposit or something like that on the front end uh and so we put the money down gave it to the gave it to the people the company that was uh, managing the property and we move in there and we start spending all this money we start remodeling we paint the facility we're starting to work on the floor in the meantime one of my good friends passes away Mike yeah, Bradley in yes. the same moment, yes. which was insane. He was 36 years yeah. old and he passes yeah. away with a heart condition. Yeah. And, um, and we're trying to remodel this with the board and we spend about three weeks in there remodeling. We've done all this work to the property. And then the city comes along and says, you guys cannot meet in here because there is too much open space, which I was like, what, what does that even, mean? how can you have too much open? I can understand a place being too small. What do you mean there's too much open space? And so apparently there was some law that if you were going to have a facility for every seven square feet, you had to have so many people, and then you had to have the bathrooms to match the number of people, but you had to have so many people per, per seven square feet. And it ended up like we, we had to have four or 500 people to utilize that space, and then you had to have the bathrooms for four or 500 people. And we didn't have those people back then. And so the city ended up shutting us down. It was just insane. I would have fought that more. Now I would fight that a whole lot more. I didn't understand. I thought, well, the city told me no. So I guess I better, I guess it's no. I get, so me and the board had a great guy on my team uh, named Nick, who we, we decided to walk back to this property management company into their offices, sort of with our tail between our legs going, uh, can we have our money back? And they didn't have to give us that money back. And I just remember Nick, you know, being a, being a total MVP in that moment, really, and he was a business guy, so he convinced them to give us the money back, and we had already put, you know, $7,000 of repair work into the property for them, 
Right. And yeah. So they gave us the, the money back, and... but it was so humiliating walking into the church that Sunday morning being like, uh, sorry, I know we've all just moved here, but we're going to have to move out again. And I say again, because this was like place number four or five uh, in the last few years that we've had to move out of. And you know, you, when people are like, obviously p- people are like, what? You know, maybe we're not supposed to have church. Maybe, you know, all these questions because you can't, why would God, why would, could we not get a location? And it was, you know, very difficult trying to lead in that environment. Myself, much less um, others in the church, but we had some great people. I mean, that's, but we kept faithful, you know, we have that here at the Oaks. I'm, I'm truly convinced that, you know, it didn't, wouldn't matter what happens at this church. There is always going to be a people that are like, no. We're going to stick it out no matter what happens. You know, I, th- I think most churches that are doing good work, they have that. We had that, but we just couldn't get any momentum and couldn't get, couldn't grow. So that church, I mean, is still, you know, they're still around today and they're, they're doing great in the community and all, but, but, um, but yeah, that, that was a, that was quite a learning experience for me. Another learning experience was when we had to move out of our original facility that we had so much momentum. And I feel like God was clearly saying, move into this rec center and people i have to understand that people weren't doing church like that really only only mark batterson was really doing church in these different types of facilities these third places he used to like to call them and so i felt like god was saying no move into that rec center but then when i went back and said hey we should try moving into this rec center no one had ever heard of that it was in and i i kind of got it was like ah, we can't do that we need to find like a church type building to move into and i should have fought that more (laughs) Looking back, that was another dumb thing that I probably, I, I should have, I should have pressed that a little bit more, I think, with, with the team that I had. Instead, I just sort of relented and said, okay, let's try to find the typical thing that everybody else is doing and try to figure it out. And so, anyway, I feel, I still feel to this day, I don't know how you feel, but I still feel to this day that we could have kept that momentum up if we'd have just taken that opportunity, but who knows what would happen. But yeah. anyway. Yeah. What, what advice, because you've mentioned the, the board a lot and the leaders in the church, what advice would you have to someone who is going to either do a church plant or church revitalization, which by the way, back when you and I were doing this, there were no, there was nothing like a church multiplication network. No. That did not exist. That didn't exist. There oh, there was like there no support. It felt like we had our district, but. In fact, you know what? The very first boot camp, uh, I went to the very first boot camp that the Potomac district was trying out and I don't know if any other districts were trying it yet but I went to that boot camp and there were about six or eight of us pastors up at the Potomac Park mm-hmm. campground and that was like the first one I remember Ken Bertram saying it was like the first yeah. he was the he was the uh, district treasurer at the time I think that was like the first boot camp yeah I remember you going to those but I think there, I went to one with you yeah there but... wasn't a there wasn't a CMN there wasn't like no. church planting networks I mean even like YouTube the... wasn't really a thing no, I mean you well, weren't no. finding like tutorials on YouTube no you had I mean to, no, social media to, wasn't as big no you had to do it all on the fly you had to just figure it out and you you either saw it in a book you saw some idea in a book or you had a conversation with somebody and you know the reason we went into the movie theater was because well Mark did it up there in DC like you know, I've talked about that, you know, so let's try the movie theater. And that's why you, that's why you tried that stuff. Cause nobody was really doing it. Right. Doing it back right. then. Right. So, so it, I don't know if the, the advice you'd have now, you might even, it might even be different. But oh, right. You were asking yeah, me about Yeah. Like about that. the board, uh, well, you know, and getting along with them. Cause there's some nastiness. I'm just gonna be frank. And cause everybody knows this, there's some nastiness that can take place on the board, even of a church. 
where there there can be backstabbing things, comments made, things that shouldn't really come out of mouths of believers, you know? So just give us some of your perspective and then your advice. I'm just going to leave this open-ended. Uh, looking back, you know, I had a lot of good good people for the most part that were on, on my different boards that I had. Not everybody was great. Um, one mistake was maybe that I've learned a lot from Scott here is this idea of preparing someone to be on the board. Back then, I guess I thought incorrectly that someone would automatically know what that meant to be a board member. And there was no like orientation or no, here's how you do it. Here's, here's your role. It was sort of like, of course you would know how to be a board member. I'm asking you. Right? <laughs> so you obviously know <laughs> That's actually what it really is to do. That's actually really good advice. Yeah. But I think what Scott does here in preparing or taking someone through a season of learning what it is to be a board member is incredible. Like, I don't remember hearing about that in class or hearing it anywhere. I think there's a book in that. If pastor's listening, I don't even know if he would be listening, but if he, like, I think there's an amazing book oh, in terms of working yeah. with a board. And because there's so many pastors, I th- for me anyway, I was like, I, d- I don't know what to do here. It's not like leading a pastor's pastoral staff. You're working with people that are involved in leadership that have a say in major decisions that are not investing most of their time into this. They're they're removed from it throughout the week. They're working in different places. Oh, they have especially in DC. Jobs. They have families to take care of, and now you're asking them to bring a say into all the major decisions. Mm-hmm. And so it was just very different. I didn't I didn't really know what I was what I was doing. But that's one thing I would I definitely say, you know, to prepare to have some kind of preparation for someone who's going to be on your board because I think in that moment you can set the expectation you can sort of lay out hey this is how you are to be on the board and so when that person finally gets onto the board um, they've got that mentality that perspective so I think that would be a huge huge thing I think also you know there's this like it's really challenging to be 26 27 years of age and to to be in a position where you feel like you need to be an expert, but at the same time, these a lot of times people are twice your age, and now I'm starting to get into that territory, and then I see somebody else that's in their 20s, and I'm like, look, buddy, <laughs> you, you don't know. You don't understand. And then to and for that person at 40 or 50 or 60 to have patience with a younger leader, but then for that younger leader to not be arrogant and to act like they're the expert in life. Look, you may be the expert and how to preach a sermon, but this dude, these people have lived life for 40 or 50 years. So you have to have this balance of respect and at the same time cast cast vision. And I think that there's a very fine line in trusting the vision that God has given you, but but doing it in a respectful way. And I'll tell you, here's what would often happen to me, is I would go to cast a vision, and the moment there was any hesitation from somebody twice my age, I would sort of relent. And I don't think that that wasn't right. I mean, I did it in a way to be like respectful, but you can be respectful and yet still sort of persist with a vision and do it in a respectful way. And a lot of times I look back on a lot of those decisions and those discussions and those meetings like, yeah, I could have brought that back like the next month. Like, why did I think it needs to die just because one or two people didn't, you know, believe in it or didn't see it, you know? It was weird. It's like, why did that never occur to me that you could keep bringing things back to try Mm -hmm. to push it? Hey, guys, I know we had a great discussion last month, but I really feel strongly. I've prayed about it over the month. Let's talk about it again. 
and bring it up again and see what happens. But I hardly ever did that. I would be more like, I would see somebody relenting or somebody saying, no, we can't do that. And then I would try, try to go find another option. So anyway, long story short on that, I think it's just moments of, of going, you have, to, you have to trust the vision, but you have to do it in a respectful way. And part, oh, let me just say this, part of the problem was my impatience. You know, when you're 27 or 28 and you have to accomplish everything tomorrow and you think it should be accomplished by tomorrow or by yesterday, it creates problems and false expectations. And um, if I would have had a, a more of a mindset of, now this is a this is a five or six month discussion. So let's see if we can solve it in five or six months. Instead, it wasn't that way. It was, I got a board meeting tomorrow night. We're going to get this thing through. We're going to accomplish it. We're going to be on our way. We can't wait around. Can't wait around for you people. Let's move ahead. Let's move forward because we got to get this vision. That's just not reality. I mean, it's not, I don't even think it's healthy. You want to, you want people to come along out of, because they want to, because they, they desire to accomplish it, not out of obligation, you know, uh, or they feel like they have to, or they're forced or something. And so I didn't realize that. I, that was, that was another dumb thing, probably just lack of, lack of patience. Mm-hmm. But I see that a lot, honestly, with younger, younger leaders, you know, they, they're frustrated because they, they meant to accomplish something yesterday and it didn't happen. And they're like, well, how long you been praying about it? Well, two weeks, been a long time. <laughs> what? <laughs> two weeks, two weeks. Yeah. Anyway, oh, the whole, when Sam Chan gave Pastor Scott that elephant and he talked about the birth of a vision, the bigger the vision, you know, there's a massive uh, period what do they call it? Gestation period where mm-hmm. the where the baby is. I got a medical term. Correct. Wow, that's like the that's first one people. ever. That's, Good job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, the the bigger the vision, you know, the longer it takes to to come to fruition. But you just don't. When you're young, you don't think like that. You just you think you can accomplish anything, and you're mad and angry if it hasn't happened yesterday. Wow, such a great metaphor. If you think about things that are born prematurely are at risk, are at high risk. And yeah, I think maybe a oh, lot of times, yeah, that's good. maybe a lot of times young leaders have really, like these are really great visions that they wanna cast, but they think because it's a great vision, it has to happen now. What they don't understand is if you give birth too soon, that that thing will not live. So that's excellent advice that you gave. I'll say that I'm I'm just now coming into really, the realization that, yeah, you've got to be patient with things. I'm just now comfortable enough, even with our team here, if we have a vision for our students saying, this is probably going to take a year. Like this is yes. not going to happen in this semester or next semester, maybe not even in that third semester. This might not happen until spring 2021. Right, and you get some looks like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's... Like, but what that's... are you doing? Are you lazy? Well, <laughs> I think that's another thing too. When, when I think you and I, we both are hard workers. We want to see things happen. Mm-hmm. We don't want to ever be lazy. It's not even our nature. And so, at least for me, if someone ever, ever is, there's an inclin- inclination that they might think that I'm lazy, I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Like, Sue is not yeah. going to be seen as lazy because Sue is not lazy. When you're younger, for whatever reason, speed is a very important element in trying to get things accomplished speed you know trying to get things done fast and i don't know if it has to do with gaining approval like you want people to notice how important your work is and what you're doing because you want to be respected you want to earn that approval but speed is very important and now being at 40 i'm like speed is not important timing is important timing the right timing like the right season i i want to be bringing a vision to fruition at the peak of where I'm at my best 
not where I'm at my earliest, you know, or my youngest. It's it's going to be bigger. It's going to be better when you're bringing when things are coming about in the right season. And scripture is full of metaphors about seasons and things happening in the right time and in the right moment. You know, there's Jesus didn't go around preaching and well, not that we know of anyway. When he was 15 or 16, there was something about him being 30 where there was a season of growth and preparation or whatever to when he was 30. That's when the minute that was the right timing and i think you know when you're younger you just you don't get it but it's very important yeah all right can you tell us about another board (laughs) board meeting example um yeah so one one particular evening we were having a board meeting and i think frustration levels were pretty high because we just could not figure out where where to have church i think we were this was a season where we were having to move from another location and try to find another location for our church i think tensions were just kind of high and, um, you know, I was at this point, I was really starting to go, okay, God, what, what is your purpose in all of this? I don't understand all of this. And you, you want me to go in there and lead. And I just don't have it. I don't, I don't have what I feel like is needed to lead because I am internally so frustrated because we cannot find a location to drive, you know, not to mention the fact that multiple Mondays, I'm like, forget this, I'm done. <laughs> You know, every Monday difficult. you quit, every Sunday you show yeah, up anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, any pastor <laughs> understands yeah. that, that feeling. but Or anyone who works. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, <laughs> Let's be yeah. honest. <laughs> I don't really feel that way here. but No, of course but I'm not. I'm saying like, like yeah, there were, there were just seasons like that. So this one particular evening we had a board meeting and, you know, I, I, I wanted to move us into something. I, I had an, op- a, an idea, but it involved spending a good amount of money. And, um, and I just remember going into this board meeting and, and this, I, I've often had this tendency where when I want to propose something, I will, I will often think, okay, what are all the things that will be said to me? What are all the reasons that someone's going to say to not do something? And that will be my first tendency to try to go through that list and mark down. But what happens is, and I'm sure a lot of people probably function like that, but what happens is, is you, you build up this expectation that, that people are going to be more negative than maybe they really are so that's what was happening and I was writing down all of the things that are going to be said as to why we can't accomplish this thing and so I go in there you know I'm, I'm armed with all of my reasons as to why we need to make this move and I've got my proposal and my presentation and I'm just I'm gonna try to hit a home run here but I'm I'm, I'm very I'm also aware that uh, the defense is ready <laughs> and they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna do all they can to get me out you know and so as I'm proposing it, I'm proposing it in a way as to try to confront all these reasons that I think are going to come as to why we can't do something. And sure enough, those reasons started to come out. And then I think what would happen looking back in that moment is when I was pitching it, because I did it in a way that I expected there to be um, negative response, it created a negative response. And it was just so weird. You know, you really, I learned in that moment, you know, you, when you're going to propose something, You've got to swing for the, you got to just propose it and you've got to believe, be ready, but don't present it like people are going to be automatic. Okay. You might be against it. If you, these, you know, you can't, you can't do that. You've got to just present it and propose it and then just, you know, believe in it, but, but be ready internally in case something comes out. But anyway, I don't know if I explained that well enough, but the, but the tensions were, the tension was just thick in that room. And I remember it just got so heated that I had one board member who was, you know, who was 
said a couple expletives at ex- expletives, whatever. Add another words. one, curse word, you know, <laughs> and then I'm like, oh no, what's happening here? And then I'm getting frustrated. And I remember getting up out of my seat, leaving the dining room because we were at one of their one of their houses, beautiful house. And I said, I'm done with this. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> I and I walk this. out the front door and I'm walking down the sidewalk and God said, really? You're done? I didn't say you were done. And he said, I want you to go back in there and I want you to apologize. I want you to apologize for what you just did. And I want you to own up to the fact that that was incredibly irresponsible. It was not like me. It did not represent my personality and my love and my care and compassion. And so I remember just slowly walking back into that dining room and, and uh, you know, these these guys are all looking at me and I'm just, <laughs> I'm so, imp- I'm frustrated because they didn't go for what I was saying, but at the same time, you know, I'm kind of humiliated and thinking to myself, I can't believe I just did that. That's not something that I would do, but that's just the level that I... Yeah, that's really not characteristic of no, you at all. No, That's you, probably the first imagine, and last time ever yeah, it is. that's going to happen. It is. That's you not can you. imagine that tensions the tension had to be so thick for me to end up doing something like that (laughs) um it was an incredible learning moment for me and i could have really just kept walking and i could have gotten in my car and drove off and uh, i could have done that but i didn't and i'm glad that i didn't because it was an opportunity for me it sounds backwards but i actually showed more leadership in that moment than in my dumb proposal on what I vision I felt like we needed to accomplish. You know, that was like, there was more trust in that moment. It created a way for me, you know, not, I wasn't trying to do that. I was just trying to say, be obedient to God, but it, it like, it built more trust, you know, it's like, okay, pastor's got his mind back now. I mean, the big thing is if God is telling you to do something or to lead something, you've got to really believe in it. Be ready for any negative responses, but don't go in there pitching the negativity, pitch the positives what you can accomplish and then just be patient and never ever allow I think a vision to divide the unity that you have on the team I mean like I don't know I mean I guess there's a point where maybe the vision is more important but those are people like those are real people they need to they're wanting to lead and serve as well they're trying to do the best they can we started our meeting with prayer just like every other night you know everyone's trying to do their best that they can but don't become so tied to the vision that you lose the relationship the relational component because you're just impatient i'm sure there is a point where it's sometimes you have to let a relationship go because you got to go on with what but not in the first meeting i mean seriously Mm. it's the first meeting it's the first first moment of casting vision like that's not the point to sacrifice a relationship because of one moment you know what i mean yeah anyway well speaking of relationship you had family at, I yeah. don't know if my dad was on the board at that time. He you, wasn't on the board at that time. But, but at times, or at some at some point he was, and I think my brother too, one of my brothers. Yeah. Yeah, I had one of your brothers on the that, board it was at the very end. But your dad was on there, I think, for a couple years, and uh, which which was difficult. Um, well, you're a son-in-law. Yeah, I'm a so son-in-law. So you've got to honor your, your father-in-law. I've got to honor my father-in-law. I've got people that are also on the board that are like, oh, they're just going to team up. But the reality was, is we often were not. He was... You know, I'm I'm sort of Mr. Entrepreneur Innovator, and he's much more on the other side of things, you know. Yeah, my dad's so, great. Yeah, he's awesome. He's awesome, yeah. but he was on the other side. Yeah, the, you're different. Well, mentality. just like you and I are different. Yeah. yeah, no, I can, we understand. But that was difficult because, you know, I often, you know, I'm probably going back. I mean, he was, he, 
he was an gr- incredible servant to our church. I mean, like nobody was pro- nobody probably put more time into our church uh, than he did. You know, he was there before anyone. He would leave after everybody left. You know, he was he was very devoted and committed. But I don't I don't know if I might not have put him on the board if I could have changed my mind on that. Just to to um, preserve just to, the relationship, just to, to make preserve, the relationship yeah, not so strange. Just strained. to make it not so you know leave church, come home, you know, we're visiting their house and we're eating a meal. Like the last thing you want to be doing is talking about stuff going on at the Issues, church or, right. or complaints about anything, you know, and that, that tended to happen, but yeah. Yeah. So having family in your church, which, which a lot of young leaders um, may end up either going back to their home church in leadership, maybe their mom or dad is pastoring or, or sometimes when students go into a pastoral role, then the family follows them. So it's a very real thing to have family in your church. I mean, we see it here at our own church, Pastor Pastor Scott and Pastor Mark, our brothers-in-law. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're always going to have that dynamic. So it's important, these lessons, you know, to learn from them. And that, yeah, now I, you, you've always been such an honoring person to your family and, and to the people around you. So I can imagine that if there were ever a struggle, nothing ill-intentioned about it at all. But maybe you just didn't agree with, with my dad that is really hard to communicate when he's your father-in-law and the father, very, very tough guy right. of your wife. Yeah. I can put you in some weird, mm-hmm. weird places. So, and I yeah, think I mean, that's I probably think... why you, you would say, yeah, if he could have just been my father-in-law, well, you know, yeah. even in ministry, sometimes a, a wife or a husband even wishes that when they're in ministry, Oh, if you could just be my husband right now and not the guy I work with every day, you know, or just be my wife and not, talking about this it, it kind of go you're always going to get that mix of yeah. family yeah i think you want that you i mean but you also want the other you want you're like hey be in this with me like we're together we're trying to do something for the kingdom i mean there's that there's that side of it side of it too That's but true. i think i think all in all like you know we had a great relationship and obviously until he until he passed away but I, you know he was like a like a dad to me and i Nothing ever went sideways with that. Like nothing ever went weird in terms of our relationship, but but it was challenging. Mm-hmm. So um, the season when he was when he was on the board, it it was a challenging thing. I will say this: like I'm not sure, Mark Mark here with serving under Pastor Scott. That to me, I've learned a lot from the way he sees it, and he often talks about like he's he's been placed here to serve Pastor Scott. Like he doesn't have this own agenda. He's not trying to work the system, you know, or I've never seen anybody do it quite like he does and that he's just, he's committed totally to Scott, you know, yeah. like, and, yeah. and he will do everything to preserve that relationship and submit himself to that relationship. Like there's no other goal. There's no other agenda. And I think that's the most incredible thing that maybe that I've seen here at where we work here at Oaks Church is to watch that dynamic, that relationship. I mean, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Like you think about it, like Mark could go anywhere he wants, probably pastor any church he wants, but to be able to slide into that place and serve pastor and to never let that relationship, he's always submitting. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. But he was actually just on the podcast, even talking about that too. So if yeah. anyone's interested in what that dynamic that looks like, you can, you can listen to that one. Yeah. Um, pastor, Husband Brian, I really like you a lot. I also love you. And this has been fun interviewing you. Yes, it's been amazing. It's been fun <laughs> don't don't leave me you. in dead silence. This is back and forth. Silence is good. It's <laughs> creating suspension. Who agrees that silence is awkward? All of all no of them, Brian. The bull just came in. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, thanks for joining us today. 
We hope you had fun listening to this episode of the Learn By Doing podcast.